Welcome to Coaching DNA Podcast. I am your host, Travis Wyckoff. My guests on this podcast are coaches, athletic directors, sports psychologists, and really anyone else that can add value to leaders. In each episode, we spend time exploring leadership, culture, development, personal growth, and much, much more. The guests are different in many ways, but share profound similarities. They are hungry to get better, they are guided by purpose, and they are driven to develop the people around them. Each episode allows us to dive into what skills, attributes, and giftings make up great leaders. When I'm not doing this podcast, I run Kingdom Coaching. It is my consulting business where I coach coaches. I work with coaches one-on-one. I work with coaching staffs, as well as run online cohorts. Additionally, I write a weekly email newsletter to resource coaches with tools and strategies to be better leaders and coaches. To find out more, visit my website at kingdomcoachingtw.com and please check me out on Twitter at kingdomcoachtw or at coaching underscore DNA and give me a follow. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest this week is Dan Tudor. Dan is the founder of Tudor Collegiate Strategies, a consulting company that Dan founded to help coaches become better recruiters. Dan has been consulting with colleges all across the country at every level about best recruiting practices. During this podcast, we talk about the importance of creating a timeline and sticking to it in the recruiting process, what elite recruiters have in common. We talk about the biggest mistakes recruiters make, and we talk how throwing a Hail Mary pass in recruiting is a coaching killer. Dan's wisdom, his knowledge, his insight into the recruiting game is unmatched. Dan shares some awesome wisdom during this podcast, so I'm really excited. So without further ado, my conversation with Dan Tudor. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Why don't we dive right in and walk us through your journey from high school to present day? Yeah, I grew up in Central California outside of Bakersfield, Shafter, California, a little farming town, about 10, 15,000 people, Um, fourth generation there. uh, So family grew up there. Uh, I could walk through the high school and and see... um, the very first class, 1932, there was my, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather was the school bus driver and just go on through into the 50s and, the, and so on and so forth. Um, and then my uh, oldest daughter was our fourth generation to graduate there. So a lot of history in the town. Uh, played high school sports, football, baseball, tennis. Um, was uh, somewhere between above average and uh, and average. It's probably fluctuated a little bit. Um, really got into tennis. And then uh, as I went into college, had the opportunity to walk on to a Division II team at a school uh, that, I, um, that I, I went to and just decided, no, because my heart, my passion at 18 years old was sports broadcasting. I wanted to be a TV sportscaster. And uh, sort of thought in high school, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a TV sportscaster. Um, so I'll just go to college and they'll give me a sportscasting job. And what I didn't know at the time at 18, of course, is that that's not the way the world works. 
Although in my case, I described that I forced gumped my way into broadcasting. I sort of went to the, the sign-up table at the career day at the, uh, at the college, and there was the TV station. I said, hey, I want to be a broadcaster, or do you have an internship? And they said, well, we'll put you in touch with the sports, the sports guy there. And uh, sure enough, the, um, they had an internship, and it was a medium-sized market. So they allow, you know, when, you're, when you're not in a big market, you get to do everything because they need everything done. They don't have any help. And so at 19 years old, I was out you know, shooting events, editing, worked my way up to doing stories. And then again, the, the Forrest Gump luck kind of uh, goes into action about two months before I was graduating college, still working at the station, uh, there was an opening and they gave it to me. So at that point, I became one of the youngest sort of paid on-air affiliate broadcasters in the country at 22 years old and uh, was extremely blessed to do that and had fun doing it, uh, won some awards doing it, uh, covered a lot of stuff, have a lot of just fun stories that could probably just be a separate podcast. Anybody who's been a sportscaster, they've interviewed a bunch of stuff, a bunch of people and uh, just really, really fun uh, people that you know you met uh, and got to know young in their career, like Mike Piazza when he was in single A in Bakersfield, California, playing for the Bakersfield Dodgers, uh, rode around in a, in a limo for a day with George Foreman as he was coming back into his heavyweight fighting career. So just like stories like that, they're just uh, unbelievable. But I tell people that sports casting it, for me is a great job to have had because it was lousy pay and the hours were horrible. Great if you're coming out of college and you're staying up till one in the morning anyway, why not you know talk about sports on TV and stay up till one? And then when you get married, you want to have a family, you want to sort of move on to that next stage in life. Uh, for me, it wasn't the right fit. So um, got into sales and management, marketing, training with a, a large national company. And, and while I was doing that, had um, had volunteer coach, walked back on to uh, be a volunteer football coach uh, at the high school that I went to. So sort of did that. That was scratching that sports itch that I had. And uh, as I was gaining in the sales and marketing and business side of my life, um, one of the things that I noticed in coaching was that um, these athletes, and this is back in the, the early 90s. So we're not talking, this is pre-internet. This is before all the technology was around now. There were some high school athletes that got recruited. There were other high school athletes just as good, maybe even better, but they didn't get recruited. And it started to fascinate me, like, why does this group get the attention? Why does this group not? And I found out that it was very random, and it really came down to, at that point, who coaches knew about. They would recruit locally, but other than you know reading 100 different newspapers from all around the country, they weren't going to find out about anybody. And what I found at that time, one of the key differences was recruiting services where kids would sign up, they would have the profiles made, those go out to the coaches. And that was really essential back in the early to mid 90s before the internet. And so um, I began investigating like, well, who are these companies and what do they do? And um, without going into sort of the, the longer details, um, affiliated with one because I wanted to see what is this process like. It was sort of the melding for me of of two worlds. There was this consultant aspect. There was helping the uh, the family and, an, and a deserving prospect, and so um, got to work with them. Um, quickly found out that the company that I was uh, affiliated with 
didn't really do things the way I would have done them. I'm not saying that they were wrong or unethical, but they just weren't doing as complete a job as, of course, the control freak Dan Tudor thought he could do it. <laughs> so as I was working in the sales and marketing career, started a recruiting service uh, the way that I thought it should be done. And, and it grew and grew. And finally, it grew so much that I had a uh, went to my office to start the day uh, with the larger company and around the corner had leased a space with a, a beginning of a staff with the other company to, as that started building up. And so uh, eventually it became a, um, uh, a choice I had to make that I needed to just jump and uh, jump over and do my own thing, which is anybody who has done that before, that's a, that's a big move to leave security and move into something that is, is, uh, is unknown. So did that and you discover a lot of things if you listen carefully to uh, to, to what's happening around you. And I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a good observer. I don't have a lot of talents, but one of them is I observe and I'm able to maybe apply that uh, to kind of real life. And I remember a call I got from a family that said, hey, everything's working well. We're hearing from a lot of coaches, but I don't know really how to respond. I don't know what they're saying. They would send me examples of, of what the coaches were writing them. And I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. I think they're interested, but I don't really know. I can't tell from what they're writing. And I remember just as I'm telling you this story now, sitting there in my chair. And as they said that, the thought popped into my mind, wow, they've never been trained the same way that I have in sales and marketing and communication. They've never really, coaches haven't been trained to do that. They're just coaches. They have to go out and they sell, but they're not doing it well. And I just thought, huh, okay, well, there's something there. I'm just going to sort of put that to the side because I was still in the middle of this. Well, uh, fast forward a couple of years, I decided I was done with that, sold that company. But that thought had always stuck with me that coaches, they, they need this help. They aren't doing it correctly. Recruiting is important. It's vital to them, but they don't really know uh, what they should be doing, how to lead somebody to a decision. And so um, talked uh, about that with my wife and uh, thought, okay, there's something here. I don't know what it is. <clears throat> and so in 1990, I'm sorry, in 2005, started um, sending out a newsletter, electronic email newsletter um, every Tuesday and basically, I thought, I need to just start talking to these coaches. I need to tell them what they should do. There was no money behind it. There was no business behind it. But I thought there could be, at some point, something there that would be uh, vital. And so over the years, it grew. And it grew in readership. Um, it grew in terms of what it allowed um, allowed me to do. So my idea first was, we're going to have this newsletter. Great. And then it turned into, I'm going to write a couple of books and we'll, I'll sell the books. I'll even teach coaches how to do that. Well, coaches started reading the books and then they said, well, this is great, but can, do you ever do workshops? Can you come to our school and, and do workshops? And I thought, uh, sure we do. We do that all the time. Of course, we didn't. I had to invent doing the, uh, the workshops and we did and they were successful. And so I thought, okay, now this is it. I'm going to just go and teach, which is cool. I love being on college campuses. There's a special energy, I think, on college campuses. Mm. Love doing that. Love the travel aspect. Um, so I'm just going to go and teach. And I did. I would put together everything you need to do, coach. Just do these things. You're going to be fine. And what I got was makes perfect sense. And we're trying some of it and it works. But Dan, I can't write or I don't know how to organize it. Or can you guys do it for me? And 
our my first answer was no, we really can't. You have to do it. After the hundredth or so time of being asked that, you think, okay, well, this is what the market wants, and so we created a client program where coaches, and it's evolved a lot since you know twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, but. Coaches basically will allow us to come to campus, do research with their team, and then from that, create messaging and ideas and what they should put on social media and text messaging back and forth, letters, emails, what that sounds like, what that looks like, you deliver that to them that they can then take and use with their student athletes. And that has been, I think, for many, many coaches, what has saved their career. For us, it's what has built a really fun energetic business. Um, and that's how we serve coaches now. And so our main, main, my main thing, our main thing is tutor collegiate strategies and our staff is to get information out to coaches that is going, that are going to help them do their job better. This little sliver of their job in recruiting, because there's so many other aspects, but it's the one thing that deliver that, that is probably the driver of what makes a coach successful or unsuccessful, or it keeps them employed or gets them fired. It all comes down to recruiting. It's the thing they're never trained on. And that's sort of our role that we have in the college athletic world. And so from, from start to finish the last uh, 30, 35 years or so, that's, uh, that's my story. I love it. Thanks for walking us through that. Are you naturally a salesman or did you have to go through your sales and management job to, to really increase your ability to help coaches? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I think there are probably some people I know a couple of that I would say are naturally born salespeople. They just have that personality. Um, For me, I, I was in high school, an introvert a little bit. I was not, I'm even now I don't like, I'm not the life of the party. If you go and, uh, and I'm in a room, I'm going to sit and listen to people and, and take it all in. And so I wasn't what I would call a naturally born salesperson, but I had a really deep curiosity about how to control outcomes of, of situations. So the, I guess the science or the process of communicating and the sale and getting people to say, to move from no, or I don't know if I do, I want to do this to yes, that, that is really fun. That's again, going back to the athlete in all of us, that's the competition part of it that I really liked when I was in that, that uh, sales career with a large company, uh, again, knowing not knowing what you do in in, in sales coming out of broadcasting, um, you show up, you're the new person, and so you get a territory created for you, a sales territory. Well, what I didn't know at the time, I know now, I uh, figured out pretty quickly that I got the worst territory. I got all the stuff that everybody else didn't want. You know, here's the bad part of town. Here's the town that's an hour and a half away. Here's all the stuff that we don't want to handle as the experienced um, salespeople. I that was my territory. Well, again, I'll describe it. I was forced gumping my way through it. So I thought, well, this is my territory. So I'm going to go out and do it. And what I discovered was um, that's the territory that nobody had visited for a long time. Mm-hmm. Nobody paid attention to it. And so I went in and just did it the way that they taught me to do it. And within a year was manager of that little branch office because I was so successful. And I think it wasn't that I was still learning, but I took what people were teaching me. I applied it. I did it. And they just happened to give me a territory, an area that, um, that was basically neglected for three or four years. And people were, I just went up and, and signed new business. So 
Again, a little bit of luck, but also just that that learning of the process. Uh, and so that's really where I did learn it. And then if you really get into the science of selling and the psychology of selling, there's so much that applies to college recruiting because mm. that's what you're doing. You're a coach that's trying to lead a, a, um, a prospect to a decision. And I think a lot of times the public or certainly just the general you know, sports fans at a, at a school are going to always focus on Division one football or men's basketball. Those are the big time things. They've got all the money. They've got all the stuff. Well, that's 0.5% maybe of all of college athletics. And the other 99.5% don't have the budget, don't have the new locker room, don't have the full staff to go out and, and you know do everything they need to do. Uh, so they have to get good at selling. If they yeah. don't, then they are, they're going to be unemployed. I mean, that's the sad truth of it. And so learning that art, that science of selling um, is something you'd, I had to learn. I think it's something that most coaches have to go through the process of learning as well. And last personal question, then we'll dive into recruiting, yeah. I promise. Are you uh, a natural entrepreneur? You've started a couple businesses. Is that mm -hmm. kind of in your DNA too? That's in my DNA. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know why. It, it, I just think there is this, for me, there's a frustration back when I was working in television and uh, maybe this is the entrepreneurial spirit sort of blossoming in me at that point. I remember as a, as a TV sports guy, you have to do any, everything anyway. And I would always, if it was, I was going to be on the air, it was my stories. I would show up in the, you know, nine in the morning. I would go out and do all this local stuff, put it all together. I'd stay there till one in the morning. So I would work sometimes 15, 16 hour days because I wanted to, and I thought that's what you needed to do. And then, um, you'd have other staff at the TV station put in their eight hours and eight hours only. And you'd go to the mailbox. We'd all be getting our checks and we were all getting the same, same amount. There's nothing extra in it for me. And so part of me thought, well, this isn't fair. I'm working harder. Why shouldn't I be getting paid more or something for those results? Mm. Cause I'm helping the station. I'm building this, this, you know, brand for the station. And that was probably the beginning of, like I need to do something on my own. I didn't know how or what that is. I mean, if you think back to when you were 22, 23 years old, you didn't really know, you know everything you thought you knew. And so that was something you had to, you know, I had to sort of bounce around and figure it out. I would say there's never, I mean, even if something was unsuccessful, I never considered it a failure because you learn if you're again, paying attention, observing, you learn something from it. So I, did, I learned something from television. I learned something from being in a large corporate, you know, Fortune 100 company, you know, business organization. I learned from starting a business and I've certainly learned from what I'm doing now because I didn't really realize it at the time, but we were inventing an industry. There was, There is nobody still that goes out and trains coaches, teaches them how to recruit and communicate. Um, so that's all been a fun challenge. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to start a uh, 30,000 foot view. Yeah. I'm going to start with this question. What's the commonalities that elite recruiters have? What are those attributes that you just kind of see that the, that the really elite ones possess? Well, I'm going to say elite also, because when you ask that question, again, somebody listening might feel like, well, that's, so what does Nick Saban do? Or what does Gino Oriema do? Or, you know, somebody like that. There are elite recruiters all throughout college athletics. It's, Amen. It's all, it's all division levels. It's all sports, young, old. And I think 
I don't even think it's something that most of them consciously are aware of, but what they do is they very much decide that I, as the coach, I'm going to run the process. I'm not going to let the family run the process. And one of the things I love about college coaching, one of the things I love about athletics at the college level in general is that they're all really nice people. I mean, I'd say all 99% are very nice people, good hearts. They want the best for the student athlete. They are, they are focused on the right things, but in the process, a lot of them, the vast majority of them, don't want to what they would say is pressure the athlete or I don't want to I don't want to give them a deadline I don't want to tell them what I need because this is their experience and they take a very altruistic approach to it which again at some level we can both say that's the right thing to do that's the nice thing to do and yet what happens is that that niceness gets taken advantage of and the student athletes lie to them the parents misrepresent uh not in every case, but in a lot of cases, and they'll keep that that nice coach on the line in case it doesn't work out here, 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 or here. We can always go to that nice coach, and they're the backup. Yeah, and so that's that's something that we see elite recruiters not do. The elite recruiter will say, "Look, if you want to be here, I want you here, but here's a process, and we're going to follow this process." Um, seeing them do that. That's one of the things now that we teach is taking those lessons from good recruiters that we've seen in action and what the results are. And now we teach younger coaches or, or hesitant coaches to, to take more of that approach without losing their credibility, without selling their soul or turning them into somebody that they, they don't want to be. There is an element of control that that elite recruiter um, has in place. I think this. the other thing is that uh, the other aspect or trait that we've seen in elite recruiters is that they they operate from a plan and they don't deviate from that plan. I would like with anything in life, you know, you want to plan and, you know, you, you plan the work and you work the plan. And that's what they do. And I find that a lot of recruiters at the beginning of a recruiting process or with a class will start the process with a plan, but it's there's not really any meat behind it. And very, very soon they go off the rails and they're off in different directions and things aren't working out. And so now they're scrambling. And what's interesting to me is that you can have a very organized, systematic, uh, plan-oriented person, you know, that they take that and they execute that on the court, on the field, developing an athlete. They they don't deviate. But when it comes to recruiting, all of a sudden it's, I'm going to go with my gut. Well, this didn't work. So let's try this. Or they they just go with these approaches that there's not really any kind of connection that's going to happen with today's teenage student athlete. And so for us to go in and be able to teach that and to work with them, uh, the results happen very quickly. And, and once you start back on a plan that works, everything, everything falls into place. And yet a lot of coaches just struggle with that. So the elite recruiters we find don't struggle with that. They, they really hold true to those two aspects of recruiting. I want to take a break uh, from my conversation with Dan Tudor. And I want to share with you a special group that I've started called the Tribe. The Tribe is a group of like-minded coaches. and We meet every second and fourth Monday night to talk all things leadership, whether you're a high school coach or a college coach regardless of what level you're at, if you desire to grow, if you desire to get better, if you have a desire to have ongoing conversations about becoming a better leader, this group is for you. Simply go to kingdomcoachingtw.com. I've also linked 
uh, a link to my website in the show notes. Scroll to the bottom, click on Tribe Membership, and learn more. Now, back to my conversation with recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. So you might have answered the question in, a, in, in this way, but I'm going to ask the flip side. What is the biggest mistake that you see college coaches, recruiting coordinators uh, commit? What's the biggest mistake they do? Uh, easy answer, by far number one. And this is, we do a ton of research. We do thousands and thousands of focus group studies with, with athletes all over the country every year. That's, that's how we keep up with, um, with our research and what our techniques are. And we, we take it from the student athlete and then apply it out to recruiting and without a doubt, easy, the runaway winner, um, is that college coaches do not ask for the commitment soon enough. And what I mean by that is that they wait and I, I cannot tell you the number of times we hear coaches say, well, they haven't been on campus yet. I need to wait. Or I need to go watch them again. We usually watch a kid three times and then, and then we'll ask them. Now, if that's part of the evaluation process and you aren't sure as a coach that athlete is good enough for your program or the right fit uh, from a culture standpoint, athletic standpoint, then, then don't ask. But a lot of coaches know they want an athlete. They know they're going to ask them. But I've invented as the coach these three or four extra things that I need to do in the process, either to give them more time or it's just because something that I've always done. And then they're surprised when the recruit commits, you know, a month or two or three months before they ask to another program, to a coach who asks the question. And what we're finding, especially coming out of the pandemic, the class of 2020 made their decisions sooner than probably any class that we've seen in the last several decades. Why? Because there was this urgency to make a decision. And the thing I correlated to was the toilet paper shortage um, that we all saw. You saw the panic buying. You saw people on social media were out loading up on toilet paper, or you go to the store and the toilet paper aisle is starting to get empty. What do you do? You react to it and say, well, I got to get mine then. We're going to hoard. And all of a sudden, all the shelves were empty because they'd stopped production and all these plants. And I think there's the same psychology was at work in recruiting where kids who would normally have said, you know what, I'm going to play out my spring or my summer season and I'll get back to you coach, but I'm interested, but I'm not ready to make a decision yet. All of a sudden those, those kids were saying, "Uh Oh, the music has stopped. I got to grab my chair coach. If that offer's still in, I want in. I just want, I just want the assurance. And that was a trend that we saw happening more, more calmly. I'll say, leading up to that, but it really emphasized the idea that, that athletes want to know where they're going to go. And if you make the right case, and if you lead them through the decision-making process the right way, you can affect that. You can control that, or you can let them decide. And they're going to either decide quickly, or they're going to take a long time. And what's interesting, Travis, is that in talking to a lot of those elite coaches, and over 20 years, we've had the pleasure of being inside some coaching offices that were really fun conversations to have with these well-known coaches. And what I tell coaches who were, were trying to instruct and teach, I said, I've never in those meetings seen the door get shut and the coach opens up and says, Dan, you know, the secret to our success here is that we give the kids all the time they want to decide. We, it's their decision. We just stand back. I've never heard that as a strategy. And if it was, we'd be teaching it. If it worked, 
because I, I'm not, I, I don't care what's going to work. If it, I just want it to work, I don't see that working. And that's what I have to get through to college coaches. That that's not a way to do it, especially with this trend of earlier decisions. And just even getting to that question of asking for the commitment, even if they aren't ready, they want to be asked. Even yeah. as, an, as an athlete, that's verification that we've done the right thing as an athlete, that all this hard work has paid off. That coach wants me. I'm not ready to say yes yet, but wow, that I got the offer. And so what do you see on Twitter and Instagram now? These athletes blessed to receive another offer from yeah. you know this school. Why are they doing that? Because it's validation that all their hard work pays off. It's a little bit of ego. If you aren't asking, you're losing out to all those coaches and we see it even from determining which five schools am I going to go visit on my recruiting visits. Well, one of the breakdowns we get from parents in our focus groups is if we know there's an offer, if we know that coach has already asked us to commit, that's one of the schools we need to go visit. And if you haven't asked us, well, then that's you fall down that list. So there's there's so many things that a coach can can do in the process correctly. That is at the top of the list, number one that when a coach knows they should ask for that commitment, they know that they want that athlete on their team. Or as I would tell a coach, if that athlete texted you right now and say, Hey coach, I'm in, just let me know when I can sign. And you did a fist pump and replied back immediately that you wanted them. When you reach that point, that's when you should ask whether that's a month into knowing them or a year and a half after recruiting and whatever that point is, that's when you need to ask. Cause that's what those elite recruiters do. So, Okay, so let's let's keep walking. You yeah. you ask for the commit. Hey, we want you to be a part of our program. Then, because you've talked about the process and a plan, once the commit has been asked, what's what's the play out then? Is it a do you do you dictate? Hey, we need to know by this point. Mm. Do we let the the student athlete run with that? Do we? collaborate on a good time? What's right. the next steps after that? Yeah, no, great question. And again, like when you, it's interesting, like when you, when you set that as one of the things on the, on the timeline, if there's a recruiting timeline, you begin to sort of think in a linear way. You, there is a beginning of the process into the process. One of the things that coaches do well at is at the beginning, they, they've got the beginning down. Yep. They see a kid, they want them, um, you know, hey Travis, I'm Coach Tudor uh, from Tudor University. Uh, really, I, I saw you at the the uh, tournament we were at. I, we're going to start the recruiting process. Once you know, we want you, blah blah blah. The start, they, they're good, and they got a bunch of stuff to say at the beginning. And what quickly happens is they run out of stuff to say. So I'm left with you know, then for the next year, texting you, hey Travis, how'd your weekend tournament go? Well, let me know how you did. And that's not recruiting. That's you and me talking, but then very quickly you you as the student athlete are going to get tired of that and stop returning my text because I'm just, I, for the 15th time, asked you how your tournament went. Um, and we know that happens because athletes tell us that that's basically their, their general sense is that I just, I, I get bored or I don't know what this coach wants. So what we tell them, in addition to then at the end wrapping it up, you have to ask for the commitment. There has to be an end point. That establishes that timeline, right? You have a beginning, you have an end. There's a timeline there. What I suggest to coaches and what we try to get coaches to do is at the beginning of the process, because every coach knows when they need a decision. They, they In their mind, they know when they need to be wrapped up. They don't tell it, though, because I don't want to pressure the recruit. I don't think there's pressure if you tell them a year and a half or a year in advance 
that, hey, in January of your senior year, mid to late January, we're probably going to be wrapping up recruiting. That's when I'll need at the latest your decision. You can commit before then if we agree that you know we want you and everything, but at the latest, that's that's when we need a decision. If you do it ahead of time and they agree, yeah, coach, that sounds fair. I should be able to decide by then. Now you've got this verbal contract. Now you can almost count down through the timeline how much time they have left. Hey, still no pressure. You still have four months. Great to have you on campus. You still have two and a half months to make your decision. We're still we're going to be wrapping up mid to late January. It's all good. Not many coaches do that. The ones that do find a lot of success because they know at that point, if it's January 23rd and they're having that, you know, look, we've asked you twice. We've been to, you've been to campus. We need to know, do you want to compete for us here? If, if they still don't know at that point, then you need to walk away because after all that time, they've known that this is the drop dead date and they still can't say yes, they're not coming to your school. And again, going back to that separation of elite recruiters and those that struggle, the coach that struggles is likely to say, okay, I understand. Yeah, just take some more time. We'll, we'll wait because yep. because I haven't done my job recruiting. I, you're, I've only got two more kids on the whiteboard in the office. Hmm. I, I can't let you go. And then at that point, they're in control of the process. And that almost always never ends well. Okay, so let me, let me ask this. So I'm going to paint a scenario. I am at University A, and Mm -hmm. I am in a region, and around the region or in the region with me is University B and C, and University B and C are power power five schools. Right. This athlete is right in our region. Like He seems like a really good fit, and we're going after him. We're wanting to recruit him, and we know we're up. We're not a power five. We know we're up against some power five schools with better facilities, bigger budgets, you know, more high-profile conference yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And he's shown interest and we think we're in the mix. And then we come to our drop dead date and little Billy is not ready to, to, and we're like, we feel like fools. If we were to say, Hey, good luck. We're going to have to cut bait and go because we actually feel like we're in the mix. And if we were to pull this off, do you get what I'm going at? Yeah. Isn't, yeah. is that a general, um, is that is that a is that a constraint to a coach, quote unquote, ending the recruiting because they think, man, just maybe if we hang in there a little bit longer. I know we said January, but what do you do in that? How do you how do you counsel a coach? It's like, gosh, yeah. we got to hang in there. Well, the, I guess the first thing I would say is that I mean, you described a lot of coaches right there, probably, uh, and certainly those that are listening have, have been through that experience before at some level in some way. Um, my question that I was asked coaches is when you gave the athlete more time and the most top level athletes and you're, let's say you're a, a, a division two or a, or a sort of mid tier division one school and you're recruiting against those two BCS schools and you give the athlete more time. When has that ever worked out? Mm. Now, most coaches would say what well, Dan, it did. Five years ago, we waited and something happened and they came to our program. So it, it worked. Great. That's not a strategy on how to build a program. Yeah. That's that's you know you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a ten dollar bill on the side and you're going to pick it up. That's not a way that you're going to save for retirement. Those walk around sidewalks all day. Yeah. So there's 
but that's it, it's so enticing to coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's you know in the 1800s you're out in, out west in California you're mining for gold, you're panning for gold, and you that's there's fool's gold. You think it's gold? We struck it rich. No, you just it's it's worthless. So that would be my first sort of go to is that there's it, it just doesn't work as a strategy. Um, I think you know I'm a football guy. I'm a football ex football coach player. I think you know when they drop back and throw throw a bomb sixty yards downfield. That's exciting. Everybody likes that. That's what gets on the highlights. Very few of those get completed. And it's not how any coach runs an offense. You're not just throwing. You know, you're just not doing that uh, if yeah. you're if you're a good coach. And in your in your description of what the coach might be saying through that, you use two key words that I don't know if you picked up. I just probably just came naturally to you. Is that hey we we really think this, we think we're in the mix or, and I feel like if I waited, we'd be smarter to do that. Well, if you think you're in the mix, what's the evidence? It, what, what, what is that athlete doing that would dictate they are on the path that you've seen play out with successful recruits, no matter how good or, or bad they are. And when they're moving through the process, are they doing the same thing that this other top level recruit is? If the answer is no, red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that top recruit hasn't visited campus yet, but I promise, coach, we're trying to work it out. It's just my dad's schedule is not working. Hmm, but you we went to the other. You've been to the other two schools twice already. Yeah. I wonder why you, know, you found no time there. Um, and the feeling part, the same thing that that. Um, that is sometimes running the coach's decision-making, which are feelings, emotions, which are not logical. It's the same thing that runs the student-athlete decision-making. A lot of feelings involved. I love uh, after when there was a traditional signing day uh, uh, for, uh, for letters of intent, and you saw in the next day, whatever local area you're in, newspapers and online, they would always profile the one or two or three kids that got the big uh, offers from Division One schools that were going big time, and I love those days because it, person by person, recruit by recruit, what did they say? You know, I just felt like Coach So and So wanted me the most, or when I stepped on campus, I just had this feeling. They're making these illogical decisions. Naturally, if if you in a vacuum, that's how they're going to make that decision. What a coach has to do is go in and create order and structure and a and make the case that this is hey, we we're going over here. It's wrong. Those other two schools look great, but are you going to start as a, you know, you play as a freshman? What does the coach really want you? I mean, you know, I'm going off the top of my head about how you would, how you would um, battle that. Sure. But a coach has to battle. If you don't, they're going to make their decisions on feelings. For a coach, it doesn't matter how you feel. It mean, it, it really determines what is the data you're getting in is that kid likely to come to you or not? Because if they aren't, if you were seeing indicators six months in and you still have a year left, but they're not interested, you might want to yank the cord and get out of there because that's something that I think the one thing that has killed more coaching careers and on a very serious note, what has destroyed coaching careers of otherwise competent, successful coaches. And you see them, you see the assistant coach who works hard, makes the steps, finally gets his or her chance at the big time. And you're going to say, they're going to kill it because they are so good. Look what they've done here and here. And they were the great assistant coach, great recruiting coordinator. They go to that Southern school and all of a sudden they struggle. They flop. And we've seen, I mean, you can talk about names. It's not necessary, but you, you, you 
in every sport you've had that. Well, in being on the inside of that, sometimes we get called late into the process to try to save a coaching staff or save a coaching career. And almost every time what happened was I want to, I want to hurl the bomb 60 yards downfield. We're going to go after these five kids, go after them hard. We're going to fix all this right away. Doesn't happen. Yeah. And you go after them, everybody else below them on the list falls or goes to other schools. Only one out of those five end up coming. And now what do I got to coach? Yeah. I have to go below that other group to the, the walk-on kids and try to cobble together a starting lineup. And you do that year after year after year. After three years, you're done. Yeah. So that if you if you go on the inside, that's where that word think and feel are dangerous. Yep. They're dangerous for the coach. They are an opportunity for the coach if we're looking at the the athlete, because if we know that they're making their decisions psychologically based on feelings, we can create recruiting plans, recruiting communication that actually goes to hit those sort of sweet spots of their decision making and not do it what everybody else is doing, which is sort of this hodgepodge of, of information and bullet points and stuff that aren't, they aren't going to use at certain points to make their decision. It's really good. Thanks so much for listening. I'm assuming if you made it this far that you enjoyed the conversation. Would you please leave a review and pass this podcast along to anyone else that you think might enjoy it? If you have any suggestions for the show, I'm always looking to, to grow and to improve the show. Email me at Travis at kingdomcoachingtw.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, have a good one.